the thing I live for is that moment of having a new bit that you're excited about. Yeah. Like that's really all I care about. Yeah. Like it's I haven't it's had the, that in about five years. I think. <laughs> it'll it'll happen. For it'll you. Happen. I have faith. I mean, maybe that's not the right thing to center your life around, but it seems to be what feels right for me. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I am glad you're here today. Thank you for having me in your ears. And I'm excited to share with you this conversation with Christian Finnegan. For my money, Christian Finnegan is one of the smartest and funniest comedians of the last couple of decades. He's also quite prolific. He's got five comedy albums slash specials that are out there waiting for you on the streaming services, some combination of Amazon, Apple Music, Spotify, etc. He's also an actor well-known for his work on The Chappelle Show, on Chappelle's show, I always thought it was The Chappelle Show, where he played the only white roommate on a skit called The Mad Real World. He's also co-star on the popular sitcom Are We There Yet? And has performed on Comedy Central Presents, Conan, The Late Late Show with James Corden, and on Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. Did I mention that he was in town last week to perform at our club? That's how we got together. I had Christian come in and headline two comedy shows at Capital City Club here in Atlanta last week. They were sold out. They were amazing. Everybody had a great time. Thanks to Christian and the middle act, Mr. Hank Denson, who absolutely destroyed as always. So thank you, Hank, for that. We had a great time. And on the second day, I swung by Christian's hotel room and we had this chat to share a little bit of insight into what Christian's up to. We talked a lot about how he got into comedy how he's managed the ups and downs of his career, what COVID's done to his career prospects and to his outlook on life. We talked about money, how he grew up a little bit middle class, a little bit upper middle class, and how he has this concept that guides him that he only wants to be appetizer rich. Appetizer rich. That could turn into a trending hashtag if we don't watch it. We talked about his open heart surgery, how that has affected his physical fitness and what he's going to do about it, how he stays relevant and how deciding to be happy is something that he did a while ago, and we're going to check in and see how it's going for him. This and more in this conversation, friends, with Christian Finnegan. Christian Finnegan, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you for having me. Let's just go ahead and lay it out. Where are we right now, Christian? We are at the AC Marriott Hotel in uh, Buckhead, Atlanta, room 518. (laughs) If anybody wants to come by, we're just hanging out. Thank you for coming to town to do the show. The pleasure has been mine. That's been a fun time so far. We had a bang-up show last night. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Good times. What were you expecting when you heard Country Club gig in Atlanta, Georgia? You know what I was a little worried about? And there's a little of it, but there's not much. I was worried because they all know each other. Because mm-hmm. sometimes like when you do like a corporate gig, you'll get a lot of people. It'll kind of almost be like a high school situation where they kind of want to impress each other by how outrageous and out of control they can be. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. look at me, I'm on the show. I'm as funny right. as the comedian. Right. You know, and so sometimes that happens when everybody in the room knows each other. Have you had a lot of those gigs? In oh, the, sure. I mean... The horrible ones? Yeah, I mean, but it's always fine when you're getting paid. It doesn't have to be <laughs> a, an artistic fulfillment every time out. You know, sometimes it's a gig. When the shows are shitty, what do you tell yourself as you're walking away? You know, I think it's kind of about batting average. You're never as good as your best night, and you're never as bad as your worst. Mm. You know, is sort I keep of... telling my wife that. <laughs> Sorry, that was stupid. That was a really dumb joke. Yeah, that's all right. If you do it for long enough, there's going to be those nights that are just brutal. I mean, that's just the way it is. And sometimes it's because you're off. Sometimes it's because the mic is crappy. Sometimes it's because 
a butterfly flipped mm. its wings, you know, and, yes. and there's some sort of ripple effect. Time zones away. Yeah. Decades yeah. in the past. Yeah. I think that's honestly for me, and I, I'm sure for you and other comics as well, it's like comedy is like the girl who will make out with you one day and then won't talk to you the next. And that keeps you engaged because you never fully own it do you know what i mean like there's no point where you feel secure about your position in the world not entirely i mean i know comedians who say i always kill i always kill and some of them are not lying most of them are but some of them are are telling the truth and they tend to be the most boring comics that yeah sure you always kill and people walk out of the room and they can't remember one thing you said right kill with the same joke yeah exactly i've seen you work the same 20 minute set for 10 years yeah and And that one hit a little close to home christian um (laughs) So was there a point when you're just starting out in comedy, you think like, I'm really special. This is all going to go my way. And then just over the years, you just start to get worn down like a river rock where you're, you're yeah. sort of like, this is not, the gig isn't to go out there and murder every night. And a good number of gigs are going to be pretty crappy. And there's just going to be crowds that are more acclimated to where you want to go. And, mm-hmm. and again, like I was saying, it's sometimes it's a job and you have to do the job. You can't go out there and just, I have to paint my masterpiece tonight and everyone has to stare and appreciate it. It's like, there is a craftsmanship aspect to comedy, which is different than maybe other art forms that you have a job to perform. And the job is what? How do you define that job? Making people laugh. Like there is a physical reaction Mm -hmm. that is required for you to have successfully done your job. Right. And when you think about doing a show at a club in New York versus doing a show at a corporate gig, how do you interpret the job differently? Well, it depends. Even within a show in New York, I mean, they're not all, all gigs are not created equal. You know, a Saturday night at the comic strip is different than a bar show on a Tuesday. I mean, I'm sure that's true everywhere. It's not just a New York thing. But you try to appreciate everything on its own terms. And sometimes those terms are, I'm getting paid well. Right. And other times they are, oh, this is a show I'm not getting paid at all. It's some bar show that a friend of mine's booking and I can work on a new bit that I've been happy with. I've always kind of sort of straddled two worlds in terms of this sort of, I don't want to say alt comedy because by current standards, I would not consider myself alt. But when I started, I was kind of started in the bar show scene and, you know, not necessarily club clubs. And so I've always kind of had like one foot in each of those worlds and they each have their appeal. You know, What's the difference between alt comedy and minor league comedy? I mean, you start in bars because you're not ready for the clubs yet, well, right? Well, not really. That's not the way it is. At least it's not the way it is in New York and LA. In no. fact, I think that's a source of a lot of frustration to a lot of road comics who moved to New York. When I say road comics, I mean comics who have come up other places, not necessarily that they're road comic, like road dogs, but they expect it to be kind of a clear cut hierarchy that is like, Oh, you do bar shows and you graduate to clubs. Mm. No, there's there's comedians who they only do bar shows and then all of a sudden they're on TV. You know, uh, <laughs> in fact, I would say that the path it's not fair. Well, I would say the path to getting on TV in New York and LA goes through bar shows way more than clubs. Clubs are almost kind of thought of as this, and it's frustrating at times. Slightly antiquated. You know, you're entertaining tourists. You know, like again, kind of more of a craftsman than an artist. Do you know what I mean? Is yep. whereas a lot of the people who make the decisions, quote unquote, they've seen all the club comedy stuff and they want the sort of weird take and and they'd rather see some comic who's only been doing it for four years but is interesting and weird than the real 
20-year honed professional. I mean, that's yeah. sometimes there's a real bias against professionals in New York. The term road comic is used slightly derisively oh, yeah, a lot of the sure. time because it means someone who is who applies all the tricks of the craft and, you know, has jokes that are so well whether they're well crafted or not is a whole other question, but it's they know their jokes. Their jokes aren't necessarily good, but they work to a mass yeah, mass they're public spit audience. Spit shined and honed right. and, you know, yeah. worked out. But are you left with something? You know, I mean the best comics obviously are ones who can straddle both of those worlds and who can do both things, who who have the craft and who have the talent to sort of entertain the coolest kid in the room, but also Kim's birthday party. Kim's friends aren't that smart. Let's be no, honest. No, let's not. <laughs> Kim's uh, Kim's great. I love Kim's a great gal. Yeah, but her brother-in-law. My oh. God, what an idiot. Let's go back in time. Where'd you grow up? What'd your folks do? I grew up outside of Boston in uh, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad was a tax appraiser. Like he had a company that would go around to small towns and tell them how much taxes they should pay, and they mm-hmm. would all hate him. Who do small towns pay taxes to? Well, like the state. Every 10 years, a town has to do like a tax reevaluation. Okay. And so they hire a little company or, you know, they companies put in bids and they get contracts with various towns. And my dad had a little company that okay. would do this. And then they would hire a company like my father's and they would come in and actually go do all of the legwork. And then they'd have some town meeting where everyone would come and yell at them. Did your dad like his job? I don't know. My, my dad's retired now. I think my dad just kind of was one of those dudes who grew up in the 50s. And just like, you get a job and you work. He owned his own company. And so I think he liked that part of it. My dad has been super supportive of me over the years. And I think it's because it just never really occurred to him that you could do what I do for a living. Right. It was just like, <laughs> right, no, right. you get married and yeah. you get a job. You That's know, right. He, yeah. he was like the last out of seven Irish Catholic Boston yep. sort of go to business school, you know, that whole deal. I heard you talking last night in one of your bits talking about growing up Catholic. Was obligation and sense of duty a thing in your household? You know, more trickle down from my dad, for sure, because it 100% is and was in his family. And not as much in mine, mostly just because my dad traveled a ton. Like, he was gone like three days a week, every week. And my mother was mentally ill, so she wasn't super on top of things. And so... There wasn't that same level of sort of structure and discipline as like I think my dad grew up with. How did your mom's mental illness manifest? She had borderline personality disorder and she would, she was basically like Trump without the money. Mm. Like she was a bit, and I don't mean to speak ill of the a woman who's passed, you know, um, obviously she was my mom and I loved her, but she was uh, a bit of a fabulist which is a sort of gentle way of saying a liar. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> um, she was constantly either suing people or getting sued. Oh, really? Like constantly. Like, you know, she got fired from 10 different jobs and she'd always sue these companies. And she would sue a guy at Kmart, you know, if a price was wrong on a can of corn. You know, oh, I like, thought she meant like a fellow shopper at Kmart. And I'm like, probably, maybe not the deepest well to be suing, you know? <laughs> She was that kind of person. She sort of a frivolous lawsuit type person and, and was very kind of prone to um, flights of fancy, shall we say. Mm. Do you think you got your artistic tendency from her? I think so. I mean, my dad is kind of like quietly, like at now as a retired person, he's like writing poetry and stuff. Oh, you know? interesting. Which is he's kind of rediscovered this love of music and stuff that he never had as a kid. And 
I think I got my performing from my mother and the writing side of it from my dad, mm. I think. You were telling me yesterday you went to NYU and you were a drama major at first? Yeah, I went as an actor and then I hated actors. And so <laughs> I... Uh, Not acting. Yeah, it just... <laughs> what was it about which actors? Which is weird because a lot of my friends now are actors. Sure. I, you know, I was going to conservatory, you know, three days a week. I had regular quote-unquote classes on Tuesday and Thursday, but Monday, Wednesday, Friday were my acting conservatory classes. And I spent a lot of time rolling around on the floor and going, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and all this crap. Mm-hmm. And, and it just felt just so corny. And and I was a little, it's funny, I made fun of them for being pretentious, but really I was the pretentious sure. one. I wanted to be like poet warrior, like I wanted to be Mr. Intellectual writer guy. And to me, they were all shallow actors, you know. What's shallow about rolling around on the floor pretending you're a, an urchin? <laughs> I mean, you're you, right. It's actually kind of deep now. I mean, well, isn't that supposed sort of to break? Appealing. Just like take you out of yourself? Isn't yeah, that the it's, whole a, it's point about of the you know getting comfortable in your body mm-hmm. and a lot of those voice and movement classes that I made fun of. But but because honestly, you're an Irish Catholic, you can't let go. You can't oh, dance yeah, like nobody's absolutely. watching. Someone's always watching. Somebody's and, they're not just watching; person, they're judging. And that person is God, Jesus. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, no, one hundred percent. Like I realize now that a lot of the stuff that I looked down on was just stuff that I was not comfortable doing. You know, and I've done a good amount of acting in my adult life, but I know where my talents end in that field because anything like physical i was for a long time i was i was on a show called are we there yet mm-hmm. i was the uh the white dude on a black family sitcom right yeah and that seems to be your jam it's totally my jam dude <laughs> it is my the story of my career is people look at me and they say i would like to see him interact with black people <laughs> and uh and it's funny it works usually thank you for representing our people i do what i can i try <laughs> so to well. not i try to not embarrass us oh like when i remember one year we had to like shoot promos for the show. We shot a hundred episodes, but we did it in like two years, two and a half years. And they wanted us just to dance and they were going to like put it in slow-mo and, you know, and it's just like fun dancing and everybody did it with a plum. No. And I could not have felt like a bigger tool. And, (laughs) and I, that was when I realized like, Oh, I'm not too good for this. I'm not good enough for this. Right. I don't have the ability right. to just that's sort right. of lose myself. That's why dance. why that's why Irish people drink so much is because we can't dance. Yeah, you know, it's exactly. Like, it's like yeah. you have to take your brain out of it, and the only way to do mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. Bushmills. Yep, yep, for pretty much, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, I did plays in high school, but like you, I came from a just a very practical family. Like you know, mm-hmm. you get a job, you work that job for fifty years, and then you retire and die. That's a career path. And I love doing plays, but I was like, that's not something that people actually do. That's not a job. Yeah. I think that was what my, when I first started to get into that stuff, I think that was my dad's reaction too. He's just like, what? You want to what? Like, right. And NYU, you're going to private school to get an arts degree? I went to a performing arts high school two mm-hmm. years in high school. Okay. And so like that's fame, kind of where, sort of, but with Celtics jerseys. <laughs> a little bit. It was more like all the goth kids, you know, uh, Vietnamese cellists and ups who'd gotten kicked out of boarding schools right is pretty much uh like i would always say like it's prodigies and ups is, right. is who who went to that school that's funny and so i was kind of already solidly on that path at that point but yeah i think that experience uh, a lot of people have that it's like yeah you do plays but that's not like a life thing yeah and of course then i've spent the last 25 years showing how that's not the truth but now that i'm 50 i'm thinking maybe 
maybe you were right the whole time. <laughs> maybe this isn't something you should do for your whole life. <laughs> that whole work 50 years and retire thing right. seems pretty appealing. Yeah. To me right now. How's your comedy pension plan working for you these <laughs> it's, days? Uh, it is a jar. Uh, it's a changed, <laughs> it's a tip jar under the bed. And yeah. uh, I have, uh, it's stuffed with drink tickets. So you go to study drama at NYU. And then you change to a playwright. Playwright. Oh, though that's a much more practical way to make a living. <laughs> oh no, practicality <laughs> was never on the table for me. I, I have no practical skills whatsoever. Did at what point did you start thinking I need to figure out how to make a living? Or what? Any day now, I, I can feel it. I can feel it coming. Uh, I don't know that it ever fully occurred to me. I never have been. I mean, maybe it's because I grew up you know, middle class to upper middle class. Like mm -hmm. my dad had like 10 awesome years uh, where when I was growing up, we were kind of like solidly middle to lower middle class. And then around the time I got into junior high, like my dad just like, he had a great decade. And that luckily for me corresponded with high school and college. Mm. And then he sold his company and then that company fired him. And, and so then he kind of, then he was selling real estate for, you know, selling houses for a while and back to kind of a normal person's life. And maybe because I had it, easier than some people at least in those sort of crucial teenage years that it never fully sunk in that i had to take that stuff seriously my wife grew up in abject poverty mm. uh, she grew up in a, a trailer that got repossessed and then her parents lived they lived in a tin shed with an outhouse and no running water wow and uh you know and both of her parents are deaf in like a real intense situation and you know, when I met her, it was definitely a wake-up call. I was like, oh, you just have a grind that I have never had, mm. you know? And luck, I mean, she's not like a person who's completely obsessed with money, but she, she's worked for everything she's got, and it's just in her DNA, you know, to hustle. How does that inform the way you guys approach money as a couple? I avoid it at all costs. <laughs> yes, and the healthy she, way. The healthy yep, way. And she mocks me for it and gets angry and says, why haven't you gotten an IRA? You're 45 years old. And then I bitch and complain and eventually get around to getting one and then still forget to put money in it every year. That's basically how our uh, – <laughs> I mean – we, I live, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm a complete child. I have learned how to be an adult, but I definitely was about a decade later than I should have been in terms of starting to think about those things. Well, the entertainment industry doesn't really lend itself to, I mean, on the talent side, on the no. in front of the camera side, your agent isn't, you know, sitting there helping you with personal finance. And issues. I, you know, I just, I have like a sour milk, like when you stick your nose in a tin, a carton of rotting milk. Anything involving finance, personal finance, I'm just like, nope, not for me. Why? Like, Why? What I is hate it. it. It's What's boring. The... Mm -hmm. it, I constantly feel like I'm going to get conned in certain situations that I have tried to venture into it. I've been proven correct that I, I have been sort of or at least attempted to be conned by various people. Or not conned, but just like, you know you meet with some financial dude three or four times who's trying to sell you term life bullshit. Yeah, right. And then, you know, and then I talk to my actual accountant. He's like, don't get term life. Like that's insane. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but it's like, these guys know what they're talking about. And, sure. and I do think that a lot of people who work in that industry, it's like they bank on people like me, mm -hmm. not knowing what they're doing. And so my reaction is basically, well, I just don't want to do anything. Like I'm a buy it in cash kind of guy. Yeah. You know, I bought my car in cash to me. It's like, if I have the money to buy something and I buy it, 
And if I don't have the money to buy it, then I don't buy it. I don't want to get stuck in long term. My wife and I have a house in upstate New York. We bought that in cash. Wow. We had all this money put away for a down payment on an apartment in New York. And at the time, it was uh, it was really hard. It was right after the financial crash. And it was really hard to get financing for an apartment at mm-hmm. that point. Like mm-hmm. all these buildings that were being built in Long Island City, Queens, where we were living, needed occupancy requirements. Like they had to be like 90% sold in order for you to get any sort of mortgage. And eventually I was like, I can't, I don't want to do this anymore. And I had friends who had little cabins in upstate New York. And so for literally half of the money we had set aside for a down payment on a one bedroom apartment in Queens, (laughs) we were able to buy an entire house on four acres of land two hours away from the city. Mm -hmm. And so we still just rent in New York, which I just find to me is just a cleaner way to live. Right, because there's no attachment. There's no attachment. I could leave tomorrow if I needed to, and that's that's yeah. another maybe typical comedian mindset is like I got to be liquid. I got to be nimble. Like I got I could they, I might need to go to L.A. tomorrow, which is all bullshit. But. <laughs> that's as a relationship to an apartment, but not yes. to a relationship. You've been with your wife for what twenty years? Yeah, now? yeah. We've been we met in uh, two thousand three, so nineteen years. I say I say twenty. I don't know why I say twenty. It's been a long time. Let's yeah, put yeah. it that way. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to dig into your relationship other than just to say you, you're not a commitment phobe. No, no, no. I'm not a commitment phobe. I mean, I was before I met her, I think. But uh, luckily, like, there definitely were a few times in the first year of our dating where my fight or flight mechanism kicked in. <laughs> that's, and That's true for, well, it certainly was true for me. It's a dude thing. It really yeah. is. It's a guy yeah. thing. And, and then you just go. Uh, you got me. <laughs> well, it's like, I'm going to yeah. trust that you know better than I do. <laughs> so you, you let her make the decision for Kinda, you? Pretty much. Should, pretty much. should I marry you? <laughs> is that how you propose? You'd be shocked at how close that is to the truth. <laughs> that is so romantic, honey. Yes, you should. Here's the ring you bought me. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. All right, let's go back. Okay, so you're a playwright. You're a junior in Greenwich Village, New York City. When do you go from playwriting and being the next Billy Shakespeare to being <laughs> to being the next Shecky well, Green? I started to, by the time I graduated, I was like interning at the Village Voice and I was writing like some movie reviews and writing for some musician magazine, like submitting some nonfiction writing and stuff like that. And that's what I thought I was going to actually do, like become like a writer writer. Like a stringer for Esquire and, and... Yeah, and then, you know, eventually write the great American novel sure. and screenplays mm-hmm. and movies and all that. But... Mm-hmm. I don't have the discipline for it, and I realized after college, I bartended and waited tables for a while, and then I realized it had been like a year since I had written anything even remotely (laughs) substantial, and that was what I used to make fun of actors for. It's like all my friends who said they were actors, it's like, oh yeah, when's the last time you acted? You know, because as far as I can see, you're a waiter, and that's honestly one of the things that got me into comedy is because you can just do it. You don't need to get permission. You don't need to get cast in anything. You can show up to open mics and... Then you're a comedian. Yeah. When did you allow yourself to start calling yourself a comedian? Sooner than I probably deserve to. I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, when I started, I started in this really weird non-club environment. I started these quote-unquote alternative performance spaces on the Lower East Side in New York in the mid to late 90s which was a very thriving scene at the time for everything. Chinese but, restaurants and things like yeah, that. Yeah, or like like specifically, like there was a couple of spaces. One was called Surf Reality and another was called Collective Unconscious. And it was comedians and poets and burlesque performers and people ranting about Giuliani and, you know, mm. at the time, Mayor Giuliani. 
and all of that kind of stuff. There was no money. Nobody made any money from it, but it definitely felt like a, a real community of artists. So I probably, and I was doing sketch. I was in a sketch group for a while, and that's probably when I started calling myself a comedian. I probably a year in, which is ridiculous. How long did you do it before people noticed Christian Finnegan? I started in either 96 or 97. I can't remember exactly. And I got my first, I did Premium Blend, which was the old yeah. Comedy Central Showcase show. I did that like three weeks before September 11th is what oh. I, uh, well, I just remember, I, that's just how I remember when it happened. Yeah. yeah. You recorded it or it came out? Recorded it. And right. so it didn't Where come did out Where did you record after. it? I think it was the Hudson Theater, which is a, okay. you know, a big theater in Midtown that's back when they used to have budgets and that sort of thing. It's so funny to think about the difference between like the way they do Netflix now and the way they did Premium Blend and stuff back then. I mean, we didn't know how good we had it. There's pros and cons to everything. Sometimes I really envy people coming up now because there is a sort of a freedom, like there's no gatekeepers anymore. It's just mm. there's... 10,000 gates, but each gate is worth one ten-thousandth as much, you know? <laughs> yeah. Whereas yeah, yeah. before, it was a very clear path about how to sort of get a career. They're like four was, and a half gates. Yeah. and it would, But you, if you could luckily get funneled through one of them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, but the amount of money that was floating around then for production values and, you know, when you think about music videos and the music industry and, and TV, like the amount of money that's just being thrown around yeah. on useless crap, you know, is yeah. hilarious to me. Break down the arc of your career for me. Must I? <laughs> um, <laughs> imagine a graph of the history of Betamax. Uh, <laughs> what's on the x-axis and what's on the y-axis? No, like I look out into the future and granted I'm 53, so that first of all is optimistic of me. <laughs> anyway, but I think about like how many people have, you know, just like a constant straight up and to the right kind of career almost nobody you know no very very few people and you know and i i don't know what the future holds i mean obviously covid just kind of put a kink in everything not just for me but for everybody and so it's really hard i made a pandemic special and that's uh you can watch right now called show your work i listened to it today well watch it if you already don't want, I mean, if you want to, but it's, you know, it was literally shot in front of 28 people in a backyard, mm-hmm. but in the, the film version, it, there's some documentary elements. There's like 15 minutes of doc footage. And the whole reason I wanted to do it, I knew it would sound like crap in an album, but I wanted it to be like the opposite of a badass type thing. It's not me in front of 600 people with flames in the background. It's literally shot in the backyard of the performance space. My wife owns and there's like clips of me like cleaning the toilets and taking out the garbage. <laughs> That's why it's called Show Your Work. Yeah, you've got you're wearing dishwashing gloves on the cover yeah. of the album. And so I really wanted to kind of lean into that just because I feel like I hadn't seen it before. And and that to me is kind of more the reality of of where my life is. And it's fine. Like I, I don't But your twenty fourteen special was shot in a like in a big oh, yeah, theater sure. for like eight hundred people. If people were knocking down the door for me to perform in thousand seat theaters, I wouldn't turn up my nose and be like, No, no, right, no. Twenty eight right. people in the I got twenty eight people at QED. Oh, but in that special, one of the things that I talk about is there's a, a quote that I love or that really resonated with me that depression is the inability to construct a future. Mm. And I felt like that's something that a lot of people were dealing with for the past couple of years. It's just the unknown. It's just like this gray, like, I don't know what that five years is going to look like. Yeah. You know? And so now I've sort of settled into just embracing the fact that I don't know. 
But I think and that, that I, that's okay. You don't have to try to construct a future. Yeah. And my wife and I talk about it all the time, even though, like I said, my wife is a really hard worker. She's not like a person who just wants money for the sake of money. We're both of the opinion that we'd rather be happy because we have, we have some money. It's like we could both stop working now and we'd be fine for a decade. Obviously, we plan on being alive more than a decade. <laughs> that's right. It's not the next uh, decade. It's the decade after <laughs> yes, that exactly. you got to worry about. I've just wanted to be appetizer rich. What does that mean? It means if I go into a restaurant and mm. I'm eating and I want an appetizer, I get it. Right. And I don't think about it. Yeah. And it's not a big deal. I'm getting the French onion soup. Like I'm not yeah. stressing it. And anything beyond that to me is really a level of wealth that is not terribly important to me. I mean, maybe it should be, but it's not. I'm not a huge advocate for, as my guest last week called it, redundant wealth. I'm an advocate for financial autonomy. Like I think everybody should be appetizer rich. And that that's what you should shoot for. You shouldn't shoot for Bentleys and Porsches and bling and all that shit. Shoot for the feeling of waking up and not having to worry about your bills until they come in the mail. You yeah, know, like, and, and in many ways, that's kind of the way I've lived for the past 20 years. And I, yeah. so even though, you know, certainly when I'm performing at a Buckhead <laughs> country club, it's hard not to look into the audience and want to put a gun in your mouth. But <laughs> <laughs> Or a gun at their heads. Yeah, one or the other. Uh, murder, suicide. At the same time, I'm like, I don't want to live the lives they've had to live to get there. Like, I, I really, I don't get up in the morning. I don't go to staff meetings. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have golf buddies. I know you're a big golf guy, but it's yeah. like, I don't have to do any of that crap. I get up at nine but that's every the, day. But that's the, cho- that's the choice, though. And I mean, I think that that is what I like most about my life now is that there's a lot of things I would actually like to do. There's even greater luxuries, but there was nothing I would trade for the opportunity and the ability to do what I want to do every yes. day. Yes, to 100%. make podcasts and meet the people I want to meet and do comedy mm-hmm. without worrying about, boy, I wish I was at this level of you know wealth as opposed to yeah. the very comfortable we're already at. It might not be the right thing to live for, but the thing I live for is that moment of having a new bit that you're excited about. Yeah. Like that's really all I care about. Yeah. Like it's I haven't it's had the, that in about five years. I think. <laughs> it'll it'll happen. For it'll you, happen. I have faith. I mean, maybe that's not the right thing to center your life around, but it seems to be what feels right for me. Well, I mean, that can't be the only thing that hopefully you feel pretty good when you go home every night, too. But Oh, sure. But I'm just saying it's like it doesn't even mean that it has to be a bit that kills on stage. I'm just talking about when you're in your notebook. Yeah. Like just when you come up with something that just delights you. Yeah. Like that's the greatest. That's the greatest. In your latest special, Show Your Work, you say that you've decided to be happy. This is in concert with a quote that the internet attributes to Abraham Lincoln that people are basically as happy as they want to be. <laughs> but you say you've decided to be happy, which you say somewhat facetiously, but have you decided to be happy and is it working? It was working. It's funny because I wrote that joke before COVID hit. But I mean, it kind of then became about COVID later. Mm. But in January 2020, I had had kind of like a real downer of a year before that before covid i had some health issues and my mom had passed away just a lot of stuff or whatever and i kind of decided in january I was like i'm just gonna be happy i'm just gonna fake it until i make it and it's surprisingly like you can fool yourself or you can convince yourself you know that if you go walk around smiling you will feel happier it's really dumb why i think that there is a chemical reaction to standing up straighter and literally smiling or looking for things that are fun to you as opposed to picking at scabs all day right which is how i am sort of more built my default mechanism is to 
keep poking at the bruise as opposed to finding something fun. And so, yeah, I really, I think some people, they're built in a certain way that they're able to embrace positivity. And I admire that. I mean, most of those people aren't funny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Comedy is full of all sorts of negative people. No, I mean, well, it's, well, because I'm I'm not saying... I don't like when people say this is what comedy is. Comedy can be a million things. You yeah. know, Mike Kaplan, who's hilarious. I don't know if you know him. He's like MYK, Mike. Yeah, yeah. But it's with him, it's all word games and logical riddles and stuff. And it's like he's a very deep guy if you know him, but that's not what his comedy is about. Not every comedian that's great has to be plumbing the depths and, you know, dragging themselves out of hell all the time. But that's where a lot of comedy comes from and certainly where a lot of mine comes from. Do you find that when you try to be positive or when you decide to be positive that you get more positive things coming back to you? I don't know that I find that to be true. I think it's something nice to tell yourself. I do believe in positioning yourself for the lucky bounce. That if you are leaning, if you're turning into the skid too much, yeah. when something nice does come along, you're not in a position to take advantage of it because you're so... Like, that's one of the things I've been a little bit dealing with lately is, you know, I had open heart surgery last year and I put on a good chunk of weight between the pandemic and not being able to exercise and things like that. And it's been difficult for me to deal with. And I've been basically living in hoodies and sweatpants for the past year. And then a gig comes up where I have to look nice and I don't have any nice clothes Mm. because I've been so, I'll just wait until I magically become skinny again (laughs) and can fit into my suits. You know, I can't fit. I literally can't fit into my suits. And so you're supposed to wear a suit tonight. I know you're, you're so screwed. (laughs) But so it's like, I literally had to go to Nordstrom's and buy a couple of nice shirts just because I don't have anything that, you know, did the surgery make you see life any differently? Was it a near death experience? And do you have a new appreciation for life? I felt like I got a new lease on life and then quickly defaulted on it. Went right back Uh, to appetizer. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I, I was trying to write a joke about it, just saying that, you know, I, it was a real wake-up call, and I spent the last year hitting snooze. Yeah, but, oh, that's, um, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, part of it is funny, because when I talked to my surgeon afterwards, I said to him, because it, it technically was not my heart, it was, I had an aortic aneurysm, which basically, it's a genetic weird thing that just, my aorta was just getting bigger, and... I like a fellow with a big aorta, by the way. You know, a, lot, a lot of ladies do, <laughs> big, veiny aorta. No, uh, sorry. <laughs> Not to, anyway, all right, all right, all right. That was my fault. I apologize. That's, there's no fault necessary. <laughs> what was the question? I <laughs> Has it made you appreciate life? Oh, more? it did. It did for a while. I mean, I wish it had stuck a little more. I definitely had a feeling of elation for a while that didn't last the way I wanted it to. You know, life isn't a movie. You have the big tragedy and then all of a sudden you see life in a new way right yeah you know and then everything's better you know you're you're still gonna kind of return to your baseline that's right that's right we talk about that a lot on the podcast the hedonic treadmill and how i mean better or worse we have a baseline after good stuff or bad stuff happens yeah revert to the mean yeah it's you know there's certain challenges i'm i definitely feel like physically diminished in a way that you know is not fun can you get that back, do you think? Well, I don't it's one of those things where like, you know, I ran a couple of half marathons. I used to run six miles two or three times a week and mm-hmm. you know, and now I I can't even run a, like a mile and a half without having to stop and walk for a bit. Like I'll run slash walk three miles, you know, and I've been doing yoga just because I need to do something. And some of it is I don't know how much of it is the heart surgery and how much of it is that I just let myself become a fat pig. 
you know it could be either or well it's a constant battle too i mean like you know you gotta just yeah it doesn't get any easier as you get older right all right speaking of age let's talk about your new music newsletter that you've got going on called new music for olds what is it it's a very simple newsletter it's just i'm a music dork and i spend a lot of time every week just walking my dogs or laying in bed just going through the new release section in you know spotify or apple music or Bandcamp or whatever just clicking on stuff just you know hey what what does this sound like because i really find that i am happier when i have a new song that i love Mm. you know and one of the upsides of the way technology is now there and there aren't many upsides but one of them is is that you can just constantly be discovering new music right and it doesn't even require going to a store you you can just do it just like oh i want to listen to afro-cuban funk music you know and i want to listen to yodeling music and i find we talked about this in the car yesterday that i find myself listening to the same you know whatever 80 songs yeah. over and over and over yeah. again and 99 percent of them were released between 1979 and 1992 <laughs> yep yeah i mean that's the story of everybody my hard drive is full right right <laughs> and what i try to encourage people is just that you'd be surprised how just one song that clicks for you can just kind of just turn up the brightness on everything Mm. you know and make you feel a little more relevant yeah or or a little alive it it, it makes your life feel like it has has like a soundtrack to it you know like all of a sudden standing in line at the bank is fun in a weird way because you're living in a steven soderbergh heist movie or whatever you know because you're into this new song or, or whatever and so basically this newsletter is just called new music for olds i'm writing it for people our age mm-hmm. primarily like a lot of the jokes i write in it are written even though i'm writing about new music i use a lot of like 80s and 90s movie pictures and clips and references because i'm i know who i'm writing for and it's just a fun thing that i do for my friends because a lot of the friends that i grew up with music was kind of our love language <laughs> And But a lot of my friends, they're busy. They have jobs, they have kids or whatever, and they don't have time, and I do. So I put out this newsletter every couple of weeks with a few songs and some some jokes. Okay, briefly, because we've got salmon Caesar salads waiting for us oh, yeah. at the club and we got to go, give me three songs that I should be listening to or three artists that you like. Well, you tell me a song that you like, and I'll give you a recommendation. Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears. It was my wedding song. Oh, my was, God. Uh, You're such a cliche, and I love, <laughs> and I love it. It was uh, our wedding processional. It was uh-huh. like, that's what we came down the aisle to. Nice. Killed. Killed. <laughs> uh, that's how I think of it. It's like, oh, we killed. Our wedding killed. Our wedding killed. Right. Your divorce song will be The Hurting. It'll be... <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I will say this. Tears for Fears has a new album that yes. just came out like mm-hmm. six weeks ago, and it's superb. It's really good. There is a band called Drab Majesty, mm-hmm. which I would recommend to you. They're kind of a little bit of a throwback band. They're a current band, but they play kind of 80s, quote unquote, dark wave, kind of mm-hmm. that sort of uh, Depeche mode type stuff. Give me one more artist and I'll give you like a different genre. It's so, pro- oh, different, jo- I guess, classic rock, like Zeppelin. You know what? There's a band called uh, Once in Future Band, mm-hmm. and they're really unbelievably technically good. But one minute they sound like Pink Floyd, the next minute they sound like Steely Dan, the next minute they sound like Stevie Wonder. But it's really kind of psychedelic rock, like really impressive musicianship, which not everybody gets into. Sometimes they don't want to hear, you know, an amazing bass player or whatever. But uh, if you have a tolerance for wankery, I would suggest uh, (laughs) a once in future band from San Francisco. 
All right, cool. Okay, so the newsletter's on Substack. I will put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it's just simple. Newmusicforolds.substack.com. All right, where else would you like people to find out more about Christian Finnegan? They can go to my website, which is christianfinnegan.com. I have five albums on Spotify and Mm -hmm. iTunes and all that jazz, and uh, three specials. And my uh, latest special, Show Your Work, is uh, currently streaming on uh, Prime. Right on. Thanks for doing this. Pleasure's mine, dude. Let's go tell some jokes. Yeah. Thank you, Christian. It was good to talk to you. It was good to hang out for a couple of days. Thank you for bringing your talents to the good people of Buckhead and Brookhaven, Georgia. The club wants more. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're a member of a club, swim, tennis, golf, book, that needs a little bit of levity, by all means, reach out and let's figure out a way to bring some laughter to your club through the art of stand-up comedy. My email is paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. What is it? What what did you say? It's paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Even if you don't want comedy at an event you're in charge of, that's fine. Just email me and say hi. That'd be fine too. But like I said, some of the best shows I've been doing the last year or two have been at private clubs and it's been a total blast. So reach out if I can be helpful. If you want to liven up the attitude at your association, whatever it may be. All right, let's jump to takeaways. This week, we're going to do kind of like one long takeaway since it all kind of blends together. First off, I think perspective on career matters, and I think Christian has the right perspective. Careers are rarely one solid line straight up and to the right. That is, if you're thinking about your life as a two-by-two matrix, and if you are, my condolences, and so nice to meet a fellow traveler. But very, very few people ever arrive at any level of professional success in any industry, but certainly in the creative industries where their future success is preordained and they can just continue to be them and and their work will be sought out regardless of what happens. And certainly COVID demonstrates how tenuous all of our careers are, but especially those careers that rely on people gathering in one place. Who knows what the next disaster is going to be? Who Volcanoes, locusts, a pollen invasion that prevents us from leaving our homes? Who knows what the implications will be But I think that each of these things, each of these unexpected events, recessions, pandemics, et cetera, demonstrate why it's so important to be in touch with the core reasons you're doing what you do. Because if you are like Christian in touch with that thing, I just want to do the next, I just want to write the next good bit. I just want to find the next good thing, whatever it is that you're doing, then you're not going to be as disappointed if you're hoping the world tells you that you're brilliant and that you should be famous and that you're going to be rich doing what you're doing. I've only been doing comedy for 10 years now, probably uh, half or a third of what Christian's been doing it. But I'm seeing that like, you know, rewards come and rewards go. And certainly you know, after COVID, we all realize that there's nothing that we can take for granted, even at the most fundamental level of being able to do your thing. So if you can in life, find something worth doing, do it for the right reasons and keep doing it. That will lead to success, if only on your own terms. All right, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with AJ Jacobs, who's got a new book coming out called The Puzzler. You will remember that AJ was a relatively early guest on here when he talked about his book, Thanks a Thousand, in which he thanked all the people involved in the production of his morning coffee. Well, he's got obsessions that AJ does, and this time it's puzzles, and we're going to talk about what we can learn about life by thinking about it through the puzzler's lens. That's it. Until next week, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.